Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Eishin, and this is my conversation with Jared Dillion. He has a terrific substack and has written uh, his third book just now called Those Bastards. Our conversation is going to be about the book, his life, um, writing in general, finance, and all the topics that he touches on, including life, death, luck, competition, markets, fear. I'm going to drop links to all of his work in the substack, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's go. I want to start it actually off kind of with your with your journey to writing. And um, I know you're taking a um, a master's degree for it now, but you've written for a long time, right? And and your your voice as a writer strikes me as very genuine, verse, very, very much like having, you know, that authentic conversation with the reader. And I find it very enjoyable, but I'm curious how you feel about your own journey as a writer, how that voice has developed. I guess you're asking, like, to what extent is that voice deliberate? Like, you can teach writing, right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to school right now for writing. <laughs> but you cannot teach voice and you cannot teach imagination. Voice cannot be taught. Um, voice is the connection between your brain and the keyboard. You know what I mean? Um, and, um, I've really, you know, that's that voice I've been developing since I was in high school. I mean, I was writing in high school as well. And, um, it's, I would say that, um, I really started to develop it when I was at Lehman brothers, when I was writing Bloomberg's to clients and stuff like that. Um, that's when I was really, really working on it. Um, but, and also my first book, Street Freak, I mean, Street Freak is, is a very voicey book and, um, it's very gonzo and, you know, I tend to have sort of a gonzo style and, mm -hmm. you know, so, but I mean, I mean, to answer your question, like it's, you can't really work on voice. Like you're either born with it or you're not, there's other things that you can work on, but you can't work on voice. So do, I, I guess what I'm curious about is, do you think the voice is changed a lot either with practice or with reading certain other writers or do you feel like there's just sort of it's been there and you you found it i mean there i have been influenced by a handful of writers um not many uh i probably i would say three that have been a big influence on me um and one in particular but um yeah it, do do you want to talk about how or in 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 what way kind of the and and do you when you find someone do you start consuming everything they've ever written or is it enough to to pull out a fragment how do you go about well my favorite writer of all time is a guy named Barry Hanna who passed mm -hmm. away about ten or fifteen years ago um, he was from Mississippi he was a writing professor at Old Miss he lived in Oxford. And he had sort of that Southern Gothic style, but like he was, I mean, Gonzo's not even really like the right word. Like he just, the guy was just an incredible genius. He did a lot of things with time, um, sort of time dilation, like compressing time and expanding time. And, uh, it was a very, you know, Barry Hanna was a writer that, uh, attracted a lot of men. You know, like, you know, men really loved his work. And it's also true of me. Like, I don't mm. really, I don't really have a lot of female readers. It's really like a lot of men that like, write my, like my work. Um, so, 
but it was, you know, it was his style is just outrageous. And just, you know, you, you couldn't believe some of the stuff that you were reading and it was amazing. So um, I've actually thought about like going to Oxford, Mississippi and getting an Airbnb for like a month and just taking a, like a writing retreat mm. and, and just like, you know, being in the same town that he was in and soaking it up. Like, you know, yeah. the thing about Barry Hanna is that, um, he never had a book sell more than 7,000 copies. But if you asked all the greatest writers in the world who their favorite writer was, they would say Barry Hanna. And um, that's something I'm insanely jealous about is sort of to be appreciated by the right people. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? People yeah. who really know what they're talking about. So, yeah, interesting. Sort of a, a writer's writer. I, uh, and and I guess you you mentioned this in the book too, right? That um, sort of in a nutshell, men men look for respect and maybe women look for love. Like and and you talk a lot about relationships. Um, um, it's it's interesting to me because from the book, one of the takeaways I, I got was like you you come out, you have a background in finance, right? Then you you do um, you write and you also do you make music, right? And you talk about the necessity of having kind of that artistic outlet. Yep. And yet you also talk about the, the danger of the, the, the caterpillar pillar. Talk about that one yes. and kind of the danger of being in a profession where the caterpillar pillar is occurring. Just, just walk so, so the caterpillar pillar is, is from a book called hope for the flowers, which is by a woman named Trina Paulus, who I think is still alive. She was from New Jersey. Um, I actually know some people who know her and she wrote this story about two caterpillars, uh, Stripe and Yellow, who fall in love. And then Stripe wanders off one day and he sees this pillar of caterpillars like extending into the sky. And he's, he's like, I don't know what this is about, but I kind of feel like I want to give this a try. So he goes up the caterpillar pillar and he gets to the top and he finds that there's nothing at the top. It's just caterpillars pushing each other off. And they fall to the ground and splat like they just die. And that's what's at the top of the caterpillar pillar. And meanwhile, yellow, his girlfriend, so to speak, um, learns how to become a butterfly. And she turns into a butterfly and finds him at the top of the caterpillar pillar. And he sees her, then he climbs down and then he becomes a butterfly. And that's, that's the end of the story. But, you know, Trina Paulus was pretty smart. Like this, idea of the caterpillar pillar as sort of like a metaphor for any large organization right whether it's government or the private sector or whatever like a bank you know especially like a bank um and you know people spend their lives trying to get to the top of that pillar and i saw this at lehman brothers right mm -hmm. like you know i was a pretty low-level employee i was just like a vp I was kind of like a senior VP and, um, you know, I saw the politics that went on among the managing directors and they were trying to push their way to the top and inevitably somebody would get pushed out and they would get fired and then they couldn't get a job someplace else. And then they're down at the country club, like drinking at 11 AM, you know, like that was really the end, you know, and um, 
I read that I read that book as a kid and I read it again while I was at Lehman and it made a really big impression on me. And I said, I don't want to do this caterpillar pillar thing anymore. You know what I mean? Like I just yeah. like, you know, and not to, it sounds corny, but I really wanted to become a butterfly. Like I wanted to go do my own thing. And so, so that's what I've done. So, you know, you kind of talked about having an artistic outlet you know, I'm the luckiest person in the world because I have my newsletter business, which is very profitable, but doesn't really consume a lot of my time. I don't spend all day doing the newsletter stuff. Right. And I have lots of time to pursue artistic outlets, whether it's writing or music or anything else. And that's the stuff that I really, really enjoy. And on top of that, even the newsletter, you know, that I do the Daily Dirt Nap, even that is an artistic outlet. Like I, you know, I really believe that there's an art to what I'm doing and I try to make every issue very artistic, you know? So <laughs> it was funny because I was, uh, <clears throat> I was hanging out with a friend of mine. He works at Blackstone and I was kind of like poking him to get a subscription for the firm. I'm like, dude, mm. like get a firm subscription. And he's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. You're going to make this big slide deck. And you're going to have like all your calls and your good calls and your bad calls. You're going to have a rate of return and, and we'll show this to everybody and we'll, and I'm just like looking at him and he, he looks at me and he's like, you're an artist, mm. right? Like that's, it, you're, you're just uh, like, I was never going to do that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I read that and I was started smiling because it's interesting, um, right? The, the whole idea of having this as a creative outlet and then going back to climb the the pillar and and trying to squeeze it into something else seems like it would um uh kind of by the way you you should really read that book the whole yeah. flowers like you should order that and um and it, i mean it'll take you 15 minutes to read it's it's a children's book but like i re i read it and i like i like tear up like it's just it's very very powerful so well, I, what I was thinking is when, when, first of all, I, like I said, I, I, I love the book and I came away with a bunch of ideas to, um, to read up on and pursue. And I, I appreciate, um, kind of all the different threads you, you lay out in there, but I wonder, you know, yes, you can climb off one pillar, but then everything else you pursue in life, there is this, you know, you can, it, it it's possible that it just becomes another pillar, right. Versus the self-expression. And there is something, um, you talk a lot about kind of this always growing, always learning. Like, um, I think the, the quote, as you said, you know, that the chart of Jared will never, will always go up and to the right, like and, until the very last moment, you're always going to keep striving. So I'm, I'm curious how you think about that, that tension of still being kind of competitive and, and wanting to be really good at what you do, um, versus, you know, kind of self-expression, like, like how, cause you know, a newsletter, you could run that as a, as a business and, and try to be the very best and, and, you know, have the most subscribers and, and whatnot. And I wrestle with that question all the time, right? Like what is, to what extent is this something that I do? Um, to, to what extent is it art versus a, a business and, and a business yeah. has different rules? Yeah. So one of the things I'm working on doing right now is I'm writing short stories and it's my goal to someday publish a, a short story collection. Um, but in the meantime, I'm trying to get them published in literary magazines. And this is also kind of a pillar, right? Like there's, there's a bunch of caterpillars, like trying to, 
you know, there's thousands of people submitting stuff to these literary magazines and they get all these rejections and, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of striving. Um, and you know, that's, that's what I'm doing. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, people, people love my fiction. They love my stories, but the voice that I write with is not really suitable for literary fiction. Mm. You know, I mean, they're very cool. I'm a, I'm a much better storyteller than I am a writer. So, um, but I get the point of me bringing this up is like, that's another pillar. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm, I'm sort of in this rat race, like trying to get these stories published and it's, uh, it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard. So. One thing I really enjoyed is you, so you spend a bunch of time on the trading floor, right? And you kind of talk about how finance gives you a perspective of the world and you sort of be curious and try to see the the connections. And at the same time, you talk a lot about human nature, right? And I think that's how ultimately you perceive markets and, and how you, how you trade and invest. So I'm curious that interplay, like what has your time at, at Lehman or generally your time in, in markets taught you about how to think about people and human nature and vice versa, right? How do you, how do the two connect for you as a, as a writer, as a trader? Uh, you know, my time at Lehman really taught me everything about human nature, you know, and at least in terms of this undiluted struggle for money, which most people do, not everybody does. Um, but you know, one of the things, one of the very basic things I learned about human nature on a trading floor, you know, a lot of people think that the markets sort of oscillate between fear and greed, right? Mm. But it, re- it really isn't fear and greed. It's fear and fear. It's all fear, right? Because greed is fear of not getting something that you want. You know what I mean? So working in the markets is, um, you know, if you have any background in psychology, it's a very depressing place because the markets are filled with fearful people like acting based on fear. And, um, it's, um, but, but the thing, but the thing is, is that it's very predictable. People behave in very predictable ways. You know what I mean? So that's been my, that's been my thesis about markets all along is that, you know, I, when I started the newsletter, I was like, okay, I'm a macro newsletter. And I was mm. like a macro guy and it's, it's become less of a macro newsletter over time. And really now it's just totally about sentiment and psychology. Interesting. And I look at psychology to the exclusion of all else. You know what I mean? And the interesting thing about this is that that approach has caught on in recent years. You find you know, there's a lot more people looking at magazine covers and looking at sentiment indicators. And, you know, there's, there's another guy named Jason Getford who has this thing called sentiment trader where he does sort of the quantitative side of it. Like this, this has really caught on. And I'm like, guys, like you just got here. I've been doing this for, you know, I've been doing this for years, but, um, but that's, that's, that's my niche. Like that's what I do. So. Do you, and and you talked about in the book too, right? You're kind of collecting anecdotes, and then your job is basically to filter through that and and figure out what's um, what's work. I'm, I'm I'm curious what you've learned in that because it can be right if you go on Twitter. Like, yes, there is a lot of sentiment, there's a lot of emotion, but it's also a lot of noise, and you have to kind of try to figure out like what do I pay attention to. So I'm, I'm curious how that actually works as a, as a process, is it just, you ingest a lot and you have kind of a, 
subconscious like pattern recognition or how do you, is it more systematic than that? No, it's definitely, it's, it's more subconscious. Like, I mean, I, I, I do a lot of testing on Twitter, right? Okay. Like I'll say something and I wait to see what the replies are. And then that gives me sort of an idea of how people are set up sentiment wise. So Mm. one thing I did recently, just a week or two ago was I tweeted the U S will default. Right. And I don't necessarily believe that it's, I think there's a low probability of that happening, but I think it's higher probability than most people think. Mm. But the replies to that were very instructive because he were like, no, this, we, we have debt ceilings all the time. This never happens. They always mm. work out an agreement. There's nothing to worry about. And, you know, out of the say hundred replies that I got, like, you know, 95 of them were shut up. Like you're fear mongering. Like this is not a big deal, yeah. which kind of leads me to believe that it's a big deal that people have a blind spot here and that they they're complacent about it when they really should be paying attention to it. So interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like one of the major takeaways I got from, from the book and, and it's not a lot about finance, but obviously it kind of weaves its way in, right. Is this idea where you talk about the situation in which you find too many assholes in, in you know, in, in, in one spot and, and being too, too happy with, with what they're doing. So is it that you're looking really for those moments of uniformity or extreme, like yes. extremely held beliefs? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's all. That's, that's really what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I, I thought it was funny because you, you talked about in that, in that situation, like you were picturing the other person on the other side of the trade. And there's this trope that as a writer, you should kind of picture one kind of reader and you know, it's like, okay, I'm just writing for this person or you write for yourself. Is that, um, is that something you actually do day to day where you kind of try to step into another person, whether it's in the market or as a reader or even a, a listener, if you're DJing, like, do, do you do this for yourself or is there kind of a, a character that you have in mind? It's funny you mentioned the DJing. I really do it as a DJ. I do it as a DJ, but as a writer, I kind of don't, I don't write for a person, you know, typically when I'm writing about, you know, these really heavy issues like mental health and human nature mm. and stuff like that, like my assumption is, is that if I am experiencing these things, then other people are experiencing them too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we all have these shared experiences. Like the most recent piece I wrote in the Substack was about Generation X. It was called I Am Generation X. And I talked about my relationship with my father and how he's never acknowledged anything that I've done. Like none of the books I've done, none of my accomplishments. And I wrote that piece and the the response was just massive the the response was overwhelming there's so many people who have who have had similar experiences in my generation so mm. really I, like i'm not writing for a person but i i just assume that if if i have experienced something then other people have too yeah. you know yeah that that's interesting i i but, but I think a lot of the things you touch on are things that others experience and especially right, you talk about loss and, and suicide and uh, mental health issues where, um, I find it, I find it hard or I've found it hard to come at those kinds of things in, in conversations and because it's sort of, you never know what kind of opinion the other person holds and like, are they open to, to this kind of issue? How does that, how do you approach that? Cause you talk a lot about building 
meaningful relationships. And is there, is there a way for you to approach difficult topics in, in conversations or how do you, how do you go about that? Cause I'm like, I'm just like that to me is fascinating to, how no, do you create I mean, that space? You, you, you can't have, you can't have conversations about these sorts of things. Like you can only do it with the written word. Is that like, right? Oh no, absolutely. Absolutely. You can only do it with the written word. Um, you know, it's it, this, this, my second book, um, which was called all the evil of this world, which was a novel was, um, it just the dirtiest book you've ever read. It was just like, it was beyond X-rated. It was just this filthy book, but a, a great book. Um, but in, the funny thing about that is, you know, later on as sort of the feedback started to trickle in, like people, I learned that people had had similar experiences, but they just would never talk about it. Mm. They're just, they're things you cannot talk about in polite conversation, but you can do it with words. You can do it on the page and you can bring people into this world. And that's, that's the magic of it. You know, like my Substack is kind of like a safe space for yeah. people to read this stuff and think about these issues without, you know, really the, the only place you can talk about them is with a, with a therapist or something like that. So, yeah. No, that strikes me as true. I've, I've, uh, um, but I've never thought about it in, in the sense that if you put it out as a writer, it gives the reader the ability to relate to you individually without kind of, kind of, re and relate to their own experience without being exposed and, and yeah. in, in conversation. Um, do you find you, you, I felt like you kept hammering a little bit on like, if you're, you have this luxury of, of pursuing your artistic pursuits, but if somebody is you know, working on Wall Street or, or whatnot, you, you call it like a lack of culture and that, you know, basically, um, you called it starvation. You called your own time without music starvation, right? Is, um, and so like, how, what's your advice to somebody who's, you know, doesn't have the luxury of writing the newsletter and they're kind of stuck in, they're still on the pillar pillar and I don't know, it, it it, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but I felt like one takeaway from the book was wrestling with all the mental health stuff, wrestling with um, a lot of issues. In your case, it's music, but any artistic pursuit can be, I don't want to call it a healing force, but can be something that that is almost necessary. Like if you're just, if you're just in the job and just in family, you're, you're, you're kind of lacking something. Yeah. I mean, when I was at Lehman, it wasn't like I didn't have the time to do these things. I had mm. plenty of time. Like I was, you know, I would leave work around five 30 or six. I would be home at seven. And if I wanted to do music or anything else, I had the time to do it. I just didn't really have the space in my heart to do these things because the job that I had was so all consuming. And when I got home, I was really exhausted and I just, I, you know, I just never made time for it. So, you know, my advice to somebody would be like, if you, if you like to paint, if you do music, if you like to write or any one of these things, like you absolutely have to make time for it or else you're, you're going to go insane. You know what I mean? And maybe mm. not even an artistic pursuit, maybe a charitable pursuit, maybe, you know, volunteering with a charity or something like that. But there has to be something in your life other than just trading or banking or whatever, because you'll just go nuts. 
you'll go crazy. So, yeah, you do a great exercise in the book, which is the, I guess, the top five memories, right? And just maybe touch on that. And I love the, I love the conclusion you, you got away from it kind of as you sort of revisit your life and was like, what actually stands out and what do I do with this, this insight? I, I, I love that as a, as a mental exercise. Cause I came away kind of a little bit freaked out. I was like, I, I gotta, I gotta make more, uh, more memories <laughs> that, that fit into that box. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the top five memories piece came from the show Lost. I don't know if you ever saw Lost, but only was, fragments uh, of it. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, never the whole. It was a really great show. Um, there's a character in Lost named Charlie, and he has a premonition that he's going to die, and like he knows exactly where, when he knows it's going to happen, and so he sits down and he starts thinking of the, the, his top five memories of all time. And it got me thinking, like, that's actually like a really good exercise. Like, what are your top five memories of all time? So I think one of mine was like marching band in high school. One of mine was DJing. One of my, I, you know, I forget. But um, it's really your goal in life should should be to make more of those top five memories and keep doing that over and over again. Like, that's, you know that's, that's really what life is all about. So. Yeah. I, I love the kind of, t for me, the takeaway is you, you kind of saying, look, money and, and the business and the competitive side, that's important. But what really lasts with you is kind of the, the relationships and the music. And then you touch and, on the and challenge. I, and one of the things I said in that piece was, you know, like I, I did lots of great things when I was at Lehman. I had some fantastic trades, some, you know, I had a trade that made 15 million bucks. Like that was a great trade, but it does, it doesn't make my list of top five memories because top five memories are about relationships mm. and achievement and things like that. Like there was, you know, Lehman was a great place to work, but you know, ultimately that's not what we're here on earth for, you know? Right. Having, having said that it's, it's interesting that you don't mention it under achievement, right? I mean, it's kind of uh, the, it was that, would you say that was like a career defining trade? Like what, what happened there? Um, it's, it's a little bit of a long story. It was when I was very new at Lehman and it was, it was basically an interest rate trade that we did synthetically through S and P futures, um, you know, kind of like short-term interest rates and, um, yeah, like. You know, the funny thing about that, you know, so we made 15 million bucks on that trade and, you know, management was sort of so disengaged from what we were doing. Like they didn't really realize like what a big deal it was. And we did, we didn't really get paid on it or promoted or anything. It was just like, yeah, just like keep doing it. So it was a little bit frustrating. So. And you talk about that too, in the book, right? Kind of the, the learning of how compensation and effort and success, like how it's all, you have to come to come to peace with the fact that you just, you, you can't be attached so much to the, to the outcome. Cause like yeah. bonuses, <laughs> like a lot of it is just politics and, and, uh, so, uh, I mean, is there, is there anything you do for, um, anything in terms of practices you do for, I don't know, call it equanimity, getting through the day, being, remaining in a creative state versus getting triggered on Twitter and, uh, getting, like, how does that work for you? Um, getting triggered on Twitter. I used to get triggered on Twitter a lot. 
Um, actually, I spend I I don't know if you noticed, but I spend probably less time on Twitter these days. Um, Same. Yeah, it's um, you know, I kind of have to for my job, but no, I just it's I don't know. It's really hard to explain. Um, like it's you know what 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 if i'm if i'm being creative right i really have to not be emotionally disturbed you know what i mean mm-hmm. if if yeah. if i am if i am disturbed emotionally my first order of business is to quiet the disturbance you mm-hmm. know what i mean yes um so um you know i mean you know i have 4000 plus subscribers to my newsletter you know, not everybody is nice. Most of them are super nice. I have great subscribers, but every once in a while I get somebody who's a jerk and they, you know, they send a reply back and I get triggered by it. And then I'm upset. <laughs> you know, I'm upset for a while. But like I said, the first order of business is to quiet the disturbance because you you can't be performing at a high level if you're disturbed. So. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I, I guess I, um, I always wonder like what, what the best, like how, how people get themselves there. Cause I feel like some people throw themselves into, into the work and kind of grind through issue and then try to get to flow state and others have very specific practices and in terms of how they get to that creative place. Like, are there any rituals that, that play a role in either your writing or your music? Uh, any rituals? Um, I mean, the only real ritual that I have is that, um, I do my writing in the morning, Mm. you know, I mean, I write all day, but I do most of my important writing in the morning. Um, I find that when I wake up in the morning, it's, it's a clean slate. Uh, I'm not, I don't have any stress. I'm Mm -hmm. looking forward to the day. I'm feeling good about the day. I'm not, I'm not stressed. And by the time I go to bed at night, I'm like a psychological mess. Like I'm worrying about stuff. I'm like worrying about what I have to do the next day. I'm worried about whatever. And so really the best time for me to be creative is in the morning before a lot of those thoughts start to creep in, you know? Got it. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, every, you know, every morning from like eight to 11 is when I'm really doing my, you know, my work. So. Yeah, I can relate to that. Let's talk about um, marriage and and divorce. Like the, the, I mean, some of your pieces, right? You're kind of highlighting um, like the everyday tragedies that that you encounter. And I, I had over a few times where I was putting the book down after a chapter or after an essay, and I was like, oh my god, like it's um, reality can be can be can be pretty uh, gruesome. So. And I'm I'm personally divorced, and it wasn't as complicated or as as painful as some of the things you outlined. But I'm curious how you think about that because it it seems to me people, um, you have this framework of people overrating the small decisions and the habits, right? Like the the James Clear type framework when it really comes down to a few big getting a few big decisions, right? Like who do you marry? Like how do you yeah. think about these these issues? No, that's exactly who I, how I think about it. You know, I you know. I haven't read James Clear. I'm very familiar with the book. Uh, I haven't read it. Um, you know, my next book is a personal finance book. And one of the things that book talks about is that it's it's not about habits. It's not about the little things. Because most people think that 
you know, whether you have money is the product of a million small decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'm driving to work. I'm driving by Dunkin' Donuts. I'm not going to stop and spend three bucks on a coffee. Right. And if I, if I do this over and over again, then I'll have like 30,000 bucks. And if I invested at 12%, then it turns into 200,000 bucks. I mean, that math works like that'll abs that'll absolutely be true. But what it's obscured by the fact that the big decisions far outweigh the small decisions. So if you get a house that costs $100,000 more, you will spend you will spend uh, 110000 more in interest over the life of the loan, assuming mm. you don't prepay, which is like decades of getting coffee. It's like 100 years of coffee. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So just that, just that one decision just wipes out all the little decisions. Yeah. You know? So like you said, like marrying the right person, like that's, I mean, that's the biggest one of all time, you know? Um, I got really lucky. I've been married for 25 years coming up on 26 and, uh, I hit it out of the park on that one. Like we, we get along great. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting that you got into the territory of giving advice and one of it was, um, keeping your money separate. And I remember having these conversations. I mean, I, I grew up in Germany and my ex-wife grew up here in the States and like just the the mindset around money in some cases was just like different. So it's, it's very easy. I feel like to like, there's certain hot button issues, which seem to come up for almost everyone, just like, you know, your spending priorities. Is that going to be part of the, the personal finance book or like, how do you think about Yeah, that is part of it. Yeah. That is part of it. Yeah. I mean, my, my overall advice is do what works. So if you want to have joint accounts and it works and you don't have fights about it, then great. That's fine. That works. But what I found is it doesn't work for a lot of people because if you create a joint account and the husband puts money in and the wife puts money in, then everybody is still kind of mentally keeping track of how much they put in. And if somebody spends a lot of money out of that account, then it turns into a fight and it just, you know, so, you know, my wife and I have done this since 1996. Like we just keep everything separate. And if we have a combined expense, we both, we both do it separately, you know? Mm. And, you know, we've, you know, we've had issues in our marriage, but in all the time that we've been together, the whole 26 years, we have never had one single fight about money, like ever. So. Okay. That sounds pretty, pretty appealing. I, I guess it's one of those things where it's like, well, you just have to discard with whatever convention is. And like you said, you have to go with what, what works for you. Yeah. Um, It, it, it's funny, you have this um, moment in the book where you talk about stress and it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. I think I used to kind of avoid stress and, and pain, you know, try to make life easy. And you're, you're, you're pushing this idea that, or not pushing this idea, but you, you harp on it. Like, well, like what's life really like, tell, tell me about your, your relationship with, with stress, with, with pain and like with, with uh, pushing yourself. Yeah. I mean, he who experiences the most stress wins, right? Like, like basically the essay that you're referring to is called, we're all here to feel a little stress. And, yes. you know, I, 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 my entire life, I have experienced stress on purpose. 
Like I went to a military academy. That was an enormous amount of stress. I could have gone to the University of Connecticut. I could have, you know, partied and show up to like miss skip classes and whatever. Like that would have been low stress. But because I put myself in a position where I was experiencing this stress, I grew spiritually as a person. Mm. You know what I mean? And Lehman Brothers was a lot of stress. So I don't, we spend a lot of time as a society talking about the avoidance of stress. It's not really about trying to avoid stress. It's about trying to manage it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, a lot of people are in jobs that are high pressure jobs and that is a good thing, but it really comes down to how do you manage that stress and how do you deal with it? You know, not instead of trying to avoid it altogether, because if you avoid it altogether, then you miss out on the rewards. Like there's not too many, there's not too many jobs that will pay you seven figures that are not stressful jobs. Either. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> even like even professional athletes, like even, you know, e even a guy like Aaron judge on the Yankees, right. He gets paid $40 million a year. The guy is under so much stress. Every single at bat, he is under stress. He is trying to live up to that contract, you know? Like all of those ball players are under a huge amount of stress. All professional athletes are musicians, same thing. There's no such thing as a free lunch. If you want money and success, you have to experience stress. Like there's just no way around it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think it's just, um, it's interesting how you, I mean, I read this book by David Goggins and you have a whole thing on, on running marathons as well. And you're like, well. It's it, you want to experience stress, but you don't want to put yourself into a thing where the person with the highest pain tolerance wins. Is it, did I did I get that right? <laughs> it's like somewhere in somewhere in the middle. I mean, I don't I don't really, I, you know, I don't really consider it a virtue to be able to withstand lots of pain. Like that was that was what the military was like. And David Goggins obviously is a Navy SEAL. Yeah, That's yeah. really like a military mentality. Like I can withstand superhuman amounts of pain and keep going. It's not, it's not really my goal. It's not really my goal, you know? Um, so I don't know. It works for him. Yeah. So. Do, do you feel like he talks about this, you know, callousing of the mind and like how you get kind of used to it. I'm not, I'm not sure I've really experienced that. And I'm curious, um, you spend a lot of time in markets, right? And, and, Temperament is so important and your kind of own emotional makeup and how you react to things and whether, in fact, you, you do. But like, do you feel like that changes over the course of your like, life or do you still, you know? I, you know, I haven't, I haven't heard that term callousing of the mind, but I kind of like it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 I definitely like that. Um, you know, as we're talking, I have my Bloomberg launch pad up so I can see the markets. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that if some exogenous event happened and the market crashed 10%, my heart rate would not go up. It would not go not, up okay. at all. No, no. Like I've been, you know, and it's really this callousing of the mind thing. Like I've been trading for so long that. I immediately go to, okay, here's a problem. How do we solve the problem? Take this step, then the next step, then the next step. Like, you know, I've, during the pandemic um, in 2020, you know, that was exciting. It was exhilarating, but I did not find it stressful. Stayed calm, 
that was one of one of my most profitable times permanent uh personally trading in those markets you know and that is because do you feel like that that's inherent like was that the case when you walked into lehman or is it oh, really no. just over yeah oh no that took a long time that took a long time no i was i when i was at lehman i was a basket case yeah i was i was just a a ball of emotions at lehman so so it was it's the callousing or did you find anything that kind of helps you with that because i'm I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about if I were to write a personal finance book, it would be something like finance for emotional people, right? Because I feel like we tend to, you know, I study like famous investors and like the people who are very detached from, you know, emotionally very detached or compartmentalized. And, but I think most people are not like that. And then, you know, something happens and they get themselves into all kinds of trouble because the book that's written for someone who's not emotional with money doesn't, you know, it just doesn't apply. Like the playbook goes out the window. I think that, um, well, I know that experiencing losses stresses people out, right? Like yeah. experiencing losses stresses people out. Um, I think that if you've been trading or investing for a few decades and you have a process and the process works, then losses are not really that big of a deal emotionally because you know you can recover and make it back and your process works and it's just you know it's it's not that big of a deal so got it so it sounds almost like uh almost like a limiting like a stop loss kind of thing too where you're i, I don't know if that's part of your process but uh uh because you you have a whole thing where you talk about intuition right and not i mean i don't know you, I'm not sure if you if you explicitly say you never use fundamentals, but it it sounded a lot like it's right. It's it's intuition and, uh, and technical analysis and kind of I don't know throwing throwing the gauntlet down to all the CFAs and and and, and the value <laughs> guys. And uh, I just I just thought that was that was refreshing to read because I spent a lot of my mental space and you know where where people think a lot about the fundamentals, and um, they tend to have. A poor opinion of, of technical analysis and, and everything. So, um, I, I guess one thing I've learned over the years is that there's a million ways to make money in the markets. Yeah. Right. And I was, uh, about a month ago, I was sitting with a friend of mine who's a CTA in Memphis. Okay. And I sat with him for about an hour or two and cause I just wanted to learn about his process. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting with him. And he's got two big computer screens and not one single chart is on his screen. Not one single chart. And okay. I'm like, I'm like, you know, he was trading corn. I'm like, don't you even have a chart of corn? He's like, I don't <laughs> care about the chart. Like he's, he's like, he's like, I'm all fundamentals. He's like, corn is at five and a half. It's going to five bucks. It's happening. And didn't see the need to pull up a chart. So I said, just pull up a chart. Just pull, just do me a favor, just pull one up. And I said, look, I think there's some support here and I think it could break out here and stuff like that. He's like, I don't care. Like that's his process. And he's mm. very successful. Like he cranks out about 20 or 30% every year. I, 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 I maybe, I think he's had one or two down years, but I mean, he's extremely successful as a CTA and doesn't look at a chart. So that works, that works for him. 
and what works for him would not work for me, you know? Yeah. So everybody has their own process. And, you know, I, I took a big dump on the CFAs, but kind of for different reasons. But, you know, like I, if, if you, if, if you're doing something and it works, then who am I to say that it, you know, it doesn't work. It works for you. So. Yeah. I don't remember the reason I, I remember something on, uh, kind of the, the, the numbers and making, making the, uh, just tell me about I'm trying to remember, was it the house or was it the, the cash flow thing? No. I don't know. The, uh, the dump dumping on the CFAs. I'm, I'm not recalling that but uh oh that was uh that was a bloomberg article i wrote a couple years oh, ago. oh okay yeah. got it got it got it um there's there's one moment in the in the book where so you talked about suicide or rather um well first of all kind of your own wrestling with with um kind of the experience of maybe suicidal thoughts and ideation but also with people who have ultimately um done that and there was a moment where you talk where you write about how you were almost angry with a person for not taking your advice or learning certain lessons. And, and, um, and it, it kind of left you like that. And I wrestle with that a lot with this experience of thinking, you know, thinking you have advice for someone or, or, you know, what would help them. And it's kind of not connecting, or maybe it's not even the right thing to say. Like, I, I wonder how, like, as you have wisdom, like how, how do you go through those situations where maybe you think what's good for someone? But you don't even know, you know, like, should I give this unsolicited piece of advice? Am I even right? Or am I, you know, in, in the worst case, am I going to be left with, should I have said something and, and didn't? Like, what, what do you do in those moments when that voice comes up? Well, I think that, um, I, I think that in, you know, in the particular case that you're talking about, I think my advice was good. In fact, I know it was good. It was, it's what most therapists or psychiatrists would have said um the, the the really the point of that essay was to talk about our lack of power to prevent somebody from committing suicide like we cannot stop somebody from doing it we have we do not have the power we are not gods we cannot stop somebody from doing it um and you know, this is a guy I'd known for 20 years and, um, you know, tried my best, but, um, it just, uh, you know, we can't, the, we, we don't have the, we don't have the power. We don't have the power to get somebody to stop drinking. We don't have the power to get somebody to stop doing drugs. We don't have the power to stop anybody from doing any self-destructive behavior. Like literally they have to figure it out on their own. Um, and you know, that's it, with suicide, it's really tough because, you know, somebody kills themselves and then everybody around that person says, oh, I, I should have done this, or I should have said this, or I should have done that. But it really, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like you, 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 you there's nothing you can do about it. Is that the, uh, you had a good metaphor in there, um, which was the, the elevator to the, to the bottom, I think, where you're like taking the elevator and like, it's going down until you hit that point where you, you're actually ready to start changing your yeah. life. And depending on who you are, like for some people that elevator goes down a lot versus like, t tell me about that. Um, yeah, the elevator, I guess. Well, um, I actually wrote about that in, uh, in a more recent piece. It's not in the book. Um, what was it called? 
uh it was called people don't change yes yes exactly yeah that that was that was a more recent one um yeah like if if you're engaging in self-destructive behavior like what is going to make somebody stop like it's it's they're going to stop when they have experienced enough pain or enough heartache that the cost becomes too great and they'll eventually stop but no amount of intervention from other people is going to make that happen. I could have sworn I read it in the book because I thought it was so good um, because it feels so intuitively right. And, and But the point you're making is right from the outside, like you don't know where, um, where that point is, uh, where, where the elevator stops and they're ready to make the change and you're that powerlessness. I feel like that's such a, it's a, brutal feeling to to watch that from the outside and maybe to watch to understand that others are probably in some cases watching you right on on your own journey and they're like well you should make these changes but your elevator has to keep going until you hit that hit that point so you really feel like there's there's really nothing you can do from the outside like it's there, all just... there was a there's a guy here in myrtle beach that i was friends with um he was a very successful guy had some money had a family and sort of like late in life, like he developed alcoholism, um, which is kind of weird because, you know, most people, if you're a drunk, you start when you're like in your teens or 20s. But he he really started when he was in his 40s and um, he lost his job. He lost his family. He ended up living in the worst neighborhood in town with all the crime and all the bad stuff. And, you know, I'm sort of watching this from the outside and I'm like, you know, when is he going to figure it out? Like he's living in a slum with all this crime. And like, when is he going to say, okay, like I've lost everything I need to, you know, clean up my act. And that elevator just kept going down and down and down. And he died. Like he just, he just didn't figure it out. You know, and some people don't like that elevator goes all the way to the bottom and they just never figure it out you know, and not much you can do. Well, I guess you can, you can write, right. And, uh, see if somebody relates to it and, and, and yes. finds use in the metaphor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned in the beginning that I don't know that you said you write for men, but your readers are primarily men. Yeah. Um, do, do you feel like there's a particular need for this kind of these kinds of essays or these kinds of topics and for, for men, cause like, I don't want to get too tropey, but I feel like it's, it, it can be hard. Um, like you said that that conversation can be almost impossible to have with your, with your male peers. Cause you just, I don't know, there's like, it's, it's weird. Cause I've, I've kind of waded into this, into this space, like on a personal level, I'm like, where do I have these conversations? And like, is, is that even possible outside of like the therapist relationship? And, um, just, I don't know, culturally, it feels like it, like a strange moment, right? Where like a lot of mental health issues are just kind of skyrocketing. And I'm like, this is, it's so strange to watch. It's, it's like another elevator just on a societal scale. Yeah, I have a bunch of thoughts about that. So I think one of the things these essays do is destigmatize uh, these issues, whether it's mental illness or, you know, substance abuse or stuff like that. Um and get it to the point where we can talk about it. Like what I would really like is for 
somebody to have one of these essays and read it and forward it to somebody else and say, hey, you should read this. And then they mm. talk about it. You know what I mean? And then people start talking about it and starting a conversation. I think that's, I think that's really, you know, but I, I don't like, I didn't write this book to help people. Like I didn't, like I wrote the book to help myself. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, I did it, you know, I don't write for other people. I write for me. And like, th this is the stuff that I care about. And if it helps other people, then great. You know, I'm glad about that, but. Yeah, it's interesting how that, that kind of selfish act can, can ultimately be something that's, I, I, I wrestle with that because I'm like the writing sometimes, right. It does feel selfish. Like you're, you're, I'm, sometimes I write something and it's really just me talking to myself. Like, will, will you finally take this, this piece of advice? Um, but you can, it's kind of a way to do it in, in service of others. Um, you, you mentioned how you like to be the, the guy who knows a guy. Tell, tell me about yeah. that. I love that. That was a great one. <laughs> well, you know, I have, uh, I have, I have a friend named Mike and he calls himself Mike, the connector. Mm. And it, that's even his Twitter handle. Like you can look up Mike, the connector on Twitter. And like, that's like, he's, he's the ultimate connector. Like he knows everybody, but you know, I like to have a very big network. Um, yeah. I like to know lots and lots of people. Now having a newsletter has been the perfect way to do that because a lot of times if I have if I have a question about like air conditioning, I can put it in my newsletter and I get like 20 responses on air conditioning. Like mm. I, you know, I know somebody who owns an HVAC company, you know what I mean? So, um, I know people in all different kinds of industries. And if I, if I ever need help, like I can reach out to them, but I think that's really, I like to call that having a big world, you know, mm -hmm. like some people have a very small world. They have like 60 friends on Facebook and they there's like one or two people that they talk to. Um, you know, it's 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 a small group of friends and family, but they have a very small world. I like to have a big world. I like to have hundreds of friends. You know what I mean? I like I like to know lots of people. Yeah. Uh, and that's just my personal philosophy. And but I mean, you talk about the amount of effort it requires, right? You have these um that, that actually struck me as a ritual where you say you'd like to take, uh, for example, a drive instead of a, a plane ride and just like start calling everyone in your, uh, yeah. like catching up with people. Is that, cause I mean, that that's, I mean, it's at least a habit, but I was like, that's actually pretty creative. Cause I don't, like, I have those moments where it's like, well, I haven't talked to this person in a while. And then it gets to the awkward zone and um, <laughs> it's like, what's going to happen if I call them right now? Like, I have no idea. <laughs> you just hit the button. You just call them. Yeah. 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 I, I called this guy and he's like, do I owe you money? And I'm like, no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just calling to catch up. <laughs> um, towards the end of the book, you're talking about kind of opening up to, I don't know, um, the, the non-rational things that can happen in life. And I don't know, premonitions and dreams and just all kinds of weird, weird stuff that you can't really explain, but like it, it's happening. Like, how do you, um, it, I'm, I'm curious because I'm wrestling with the, the same thing. And sometimes you have a deja vu and you're like, well, does this actually mean something? Or I'm just, am I just going nuts over here? Um, tell me about, I don't know, your, um, 
your, your philosophy on, on, on life and these things and how it's, how it's changed, which is like experiences. Look, I'm not a, I'm not a superstitious person. I'm a very rational person. Um, and I believe there are such things as coincidences. You know, some people say, well, there's no such thing as coincidences. I'm like, no, there's coincidences there yeah. for sure. Um, but there's been a couple points in my life where I was put in contact with the exact right person at the exact right time for a reason. And I'm like, it's too, it's, it's, it's too good to be true. Right. It's, it's, it's just too good to be true. Um, it was funny because, um, my wife works at a university and she was applying for a job internally and she didn't get the job. And I said, well, sometimes things happen for a reason. And she says, I hate that saying, she says, don't say that. I hate that saying. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, all right, let me say it a different way. Okay. Maybe not getting this job was actually the best thing for you because you're going to get other opportunities, which are even better that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't taken this job. Right. Like that's another way of saying it. Yes. So, um, you know, I've had sort of this circuitous path in my life. Like I was in the coast guard and I worked on wall street and I've been a writer and I've had a radio show and all this stuff. And like, I, there's been no design to it. Like none of it has been intentional. You know, I just kind of fall into things, you know, um, but it has all worked out, you know, and the, the takeaway from that is it always works out. It's pretty rare that it doesn't work out. You know, it's pretty rare that something happens and like, you just, you know, you're stuck and mm. it was, the, it was the worst thing in the world. And, you know, there's, there's always opportunities. So. Well. That that brings me actually to to another essay I, I love, which is your favorite or most revealing recruitment question. Yes. And, and, yeah. Tell tell me about that one because I thought that was really I, I that sparked a lot of stuff. So I used to interview kids at Liam Brothers, these kids out of college, and it was the most boring thing in the world because it was so boring because they all had 4.0s. They all were athletes. They all did all this stuff and super high SAT scores. And they were all the same. They were all absolutely the same. And in an interview, they all acted the same. I'm like, like, how do you differentiate between these people? So I have a strong belief in luck, right? I believe that I'm like the luckiest person in the world and that good things happen to me all the time. So I said, well, I, I don't want to work with somebody who's unlucky. So I'm going to ask them if they're lucky. So I would just ask them point blank in the interview. Are you lucky? <laughs> and they would, it was funny because they would really start to squirm because right. like, they're like, well, they're, they didn't know what the right answer to the question was, Yeah, right? They're trying to find the right answer to the question. Well, there's only one wrong answer. And the wrong answer is I'm not lucky. Like I have really bad luck. Um, and the vast majority of people said, well, I think I'm lucky. And I said, well, I don't, I, I'm not asking if you think you're lucky. I'm asking if you are lucky. And there was one person I interviewed and she said, I'm abs, I'm super lucky. Like mm. crazy good things happen to me all the time. This happened and this happened and this happened. I'm like, great. I want to work with you. So, you know. I, so, so I, I read that and I was like, okay, I, I wonder how I think about that. And I think about it differently now than a few years ago, but I was also wondering, does it really reveal kind of an added 
does it reveal gratitude? Like, do you, do you think it actually reveals, you know, luck or, or um, does it just reveal a, an attitude towards life or a character trait or, or perspective? Uh, I think, I think also that is true. I, I think so. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, the, res the response of like, I'm not lucky is like, okay, that's, that's almost like, um, I mean, the, there's a question like, is this person actually going to be unlucky? And you talked about a trader, right? For where like all the, the traits had, like, it just seemed like things were just always working in the, other in the worst way, but it could also be kind of an attitude of, of, um, I don't know, being, I mean, if somebody says that, right, like it, it, there's like a whole worldview that, that comes with that. That's kind of strange to invite into your, into your space. Like, there, there is a whole worldview that comes with that. And I want to hang out with people who have that worldview, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's really what I'm shooting for. Uh, you moved away from New York and you're, you're, you, you mentioned you're the only person with a Bloomberg in Myrtle beach. Is that right? And I was like, um, do you find, I, I thought a lot about this kind of where, where do you choosing where to live? I um, mean, we can close it out after that. I, I, I think we're hitting on, on time, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, cause you're a trader, you're far away from wall street now, but you're still in the markets. Like, how does that work for you? Um, and do you regret it and, or, or do, do you love it? And just why? Cause the big question for me, like, where do you live and why? This is, this is, this is an amazing place. So first of all, Myrtle beach is kind of a dump. Like it is like, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's tourist town, but it's like redneck Riviera. Like it's very cheap. So it's just, it's not high class at all. Um, like even, even just like the buildings and the stores, everything is crap. Like everything is really, you know, like poorly made and it's a dump, but okay. it's, it is the best place in the world. Okay. So for a couple of reasons, number one, Myrtle beach gets like 230 days of sunlight a year. Ooh, nice. and, and New York gets 110. So, so you cannot underestimate the effect that sunlight has on your psychology. <laughs> like, you know, I, I drove to work. I it pretty much every morning when I drive to work, I'm getting a big blast of sunlight through the windshield mm -hmm. has a huge effect on me. Right. Really? The only place you would go in the country to get more sunlight is Arizona. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, I also like that, um, there is no finance in this town. There is no finance at all. I mean, there's like Edward Jones and financial advisors and there's a Merrill Lynch here and stuff like that, but it's really just FAs. Um, nobody's managing money. Like there's, there's none of this dick measuring about like, who's, you know, has a better job or is making more money or what your returns are this year or whatever. Like, it just doesn't matter, you know? So it's, um, it, it's, it's terrific. And the other thing from a personal standpoint is like here in Myrtle beach, like nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody like. You know, I, I, I'm in this office here and, you know, I, I have a pretty important job. I have a big newsletter and I have a lot of influence and a lot of Twitter followers and whatever. And I'm a, you know, sort of a medium famous guy in finance and I can walk down the street here and nobody knows who I am. You know, right. I, I go back up to New York and I have people stopping me on the sidewalk, you know, 
So it's really it, like the anonymity that I have here is fantastic. It sounds like it's really good for your mental health, like for the space, like both oh, the sunlight and just kind of the non. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, and, and Twitter's like, cause I was like, I was thinking, um, about some of the traders who used sentiment and kind of understand, like understanding the narrative and understanding where the market is in its head is important. And I feel like in the past you had to be, whether it was New York or London, like it had to be somewhere in the, in the crowd to understand the crowud. And I guess now you can just you use Twitter and that's like the laboratory and, and, and it yeah, works. But also like there's a big, there's a big disadvantage to living in New York or London. And, you know, you're constantly surrounded by people who think the same as you and they reinforce your beliefs. Mm. And there's a lot of this, there's a really a group think in New York, you know, and I can, I can actually sit here in Myrtle beach and I can see the group think in New York. And I'm like, okay, like that's, you know, that's the direction everybody's going now. And it's, you know, I'm just totally remote from it. Yeah. I, I hear you on that. I, I thought that was um, fantastic. And I, I really appreciate that you shared it so openly. Yeah. Um, thanks. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jared. I, I appreciate it.